Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And today we're joined by principal analyst Chris Gardner to discuss the impact of automation seen through the automation framework. Welcome, Chris. Good to be with you. So, you know, automation, AI, robotics has caught a lot of people's imagination. And I was very interested in sort of the reasons why we built this framework in the first first place. What were we seeing that compelled us to build this kind of logic? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's not a situation where automation's new, right? I mean, we've had automation for some time. This has gone back as far as back there's been machinery. Um, What the challenge was we were running into is a lot of organizations had islands of automation, and they were trying to figure out exactly how these various pieces fit, if they were purchasing things that were overlaid on top of one another, um, and also what the impact was in the organization if they brought some new type of automation in. So the, the purpose of the framework is to give that insight, to actually be able to dig into various types of automation and say, look, if you bring in chatbots, if you bring in AI, if you bring in what have you, this is what the impact is, and perhaps you can reuse some of the same talent, Perhaps you need to bring in new talents. You know, we can help guide that decision-making process. So this sort of moves us from, to your point, islands of automation because you can capitalize on certain pieces to a more of a top-down holistic portfolio management, which is now let's look at the system of automation that's in place in the business so we can make judgments about does that system make sense? Correct, correct. I often have conversations with clients where they say to me that, they have two tools that do exactly the same thing in different places in the organization. And I'm like, how the hell did that happen? It's because it organically got stood up over time. It wasn't a situation where people were thinking about it holistically and applying a strategy across the board. And quite frankly, it was almost impossible to do so. And now you have the tool set to do so. And would it also help firms understand how maybe certain automation can um, connect or amplify the, you know, technical uh, manifestations of a certain piece of tech? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're in a situation right now where, uh, you know, the term coopetition couldn't be more accurate for most types of automation. Uh, I've, I've had situations where I've had competitors all tell me that they're not only competing with one another, but integrating with one another. So to be able to make those connections and say, okay, I'm going to hook my chatbot into this service delivery automation, for example, or I'm going to hook this um, robotic industrial automation into AI becomes super valuable. And there's sometimes when you want to make that integration choice and it's going to be more challenging than others. It's going to be more risky and it's going to take more time. And you need to know that. So, Chris, I think maybe it would be helpful to essentially define what are the dimensions of the of the framework that we're talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So there's nine altogether. Um, and they break down into three main categories. Uh, enterprise dimensions, which is the impact on organizations as a whole. Process dimensions, which go into kind of the, the nitty-gritty of how the machinery works. And human dimensions, you know, what's the impact on society? And I can go into each of those into more detail, but what ends up happening in a lot of organizations that I've talked to is they only focus on the process. They don't focus on the enterprise element. They don't focus on the human element. And what we're saying is those are just as important, if not more so, than knowing if something is deterministic or not, for example. Yeah, I mean, when I looked at this first, the two words that came to my mind were risk and reward. And just on the risk side, there's a lot of things that you can do in automation like RPA, that is low human risk, and but high reward economically. And there's some things that you're going to do 
from an IA perspective in terms of using data in a way to drive personalized experiences that sort of straddles a line between being very helpful and being a little bit eerie. That's risky, but you have to test it out. And so there's very different risk-reward lines here. And is that part of the motivation so people sort of can look at how they are managing risk and reward in this in the automation mix? Absolutely. There, there's one dimension in particular. Um, we call it governance and auditability. But each type of automation is a little more clear as to how it's functioning. Some of them are more black box than others. Um, a good example would be AI operations for infrastructure and operations. Um, these tools go off and do things on their own without really giving taking in much input from anyone. And the challenge there is you not only have the tool having more control, but you don't sometimes know exactly what the tool is trying to do or why it made a certain decision. And that's a risk assessment. Whereas if you compare to, say, um, sales engagement automation, where everything is tracked from the beginning to end, and you can recognize where you stand with the customer at a given point, and it's, you have an audit trail, um, it becomes a lot easier to slot that into an organization because risk-wise, you're not going to be nearly as impacted. So one of the items that we can drill down on is comprehension, where on one side of the puzzle or one bookend is coded, meaning it's not really learning something. It's already being told what to do for as long as it's going to be in place. And the other side of that is learning, which is you're going to build it once. It's going to take all these inputs as it lives and start doing other things along the way. This is classic machine learning. These are very different automation play, plays this. How would someone use that? What would, what would be the way that someone would make a judgment about how to think of that at portfolio logic? Yeah, it's interesting because I think some people would at first glance look at it and say, well, obviously learning is better than coded, right? It, it's it's, it's going to be more intelligent about its interactions. It's going to figure things out over time. But sometimes you don't want automation to figure things out. Sometimes you want it to follow a very specific rule set. If, if I'm building a car with a robot. I don't want it to build cars differently each time. I'm probably going to want to give it instructions and say, here's a coded approach that I want you to take. And then I can apply machine learning on top of that and say, okay, let's make some adjustments here. But I don't want every single car that come off the line to be completely different. Um, we do this for every single type of automation. So we can hand, you know, hand this information to you and say, look, uh, this tool is going to go off and learn on its own. It requires no human beings. In fact, you're not going to even want a human being in the conversation to begin with. Um, the automation is going to take care of maintaining and optimizing itself. Therefore, personnel-wise, you don't need to bring certain personnel that you would expect. You don't need to bring operations folks. You will need to bring in data scientists. Whereas a hard-coded solution, one on the other end of the spectrum, you want developers. You want folks that are going to be writing code and creating workflows that this automation is going to go forward with, whether it's physical or in software automation. Chris, one of the the items that you flagged in terms of describing the framework were maybe two of the dimensions, the enterprise dimension and the people dimension that maybe don't get considered as folks are implementing automation. In the enterprise dimension, we have robotics quotient. And I think that's one thing that we would want to be highlighting here is that you know, where do certain automation fall along that spectrum and what should leaders be doing about something that has a high robotics quotient versus a low robotics quotient? 
Yeah, absolutely. So robotics quotient was developed by my coworker and compatriot, um, J.P. Gounder. It's, it's kind of amazing. It, for folks that don't know what RQ is, it's essentially what would be the automation equivalent of IQ or emotional quotient, EQ. And what it says is that if you have a type of automation that has a very high rating on the RQ scale, you're going to need significant control, cultural and organizational investment in order to use it. It's not going to be a situation where you could just drop it into your company and expect folks to, to jump right on board. Um, whereas the opposite end is something with low RQ simply says that you don't really need to have specialized skill sets. You can go in and just use the thing. You could use established KPIs. And what's nice about RQ is like IQ and EQ, you can measure it. You can look at the relationship between people, leadership, and organization in a given enterprise and make a call as to how high your RQ is. And then you can make a decision based off of our automation, automation framework that says, look, you are, this is demanding a very high RQ, but your organization has a moderate or a low RQ. You may want to bring in some outside expertise for this. You may want to bring in specialized data scientists for this, this particular situation. So the automation framework itself... What I find interesting sort of in that visual context, Chris, is that each project has its own characteristics across these nine dimensions. So it's not just you're sort of just solving for one, you're solving for nine. And when you do that and you look at all the different automation projects, you can actually understand what the portfolio looks like and how you're managing across these nine. I mean, this feels like the power of it, and I'll, I'll add a piece to it, which is what I find most compelling here is if I'm a... CIO, I can understand the technology considerations associated with this. If I'm a CMO, I can understand how much the front end is being affected by automation and ensuring that it's balanced, meaning I'm not doing too little, but I'm not doing too much too fast. It really is an enterprise tool, not simply an automation tool. Correct, correct. And it's definitely a visual medium and a way that's um, never been done before. So uh, as you were saying, if you graph out the nine dimensions for any type of automation, you get what's essentially a visual signature for that automation. Um, I want to be clear that some people look at the graph and say, well, higher means better. That's not necessarily true. In this case, it's simply a um, kind of fingerprint of the different automation type. When you compare automation to one another, if it has a single, a singular fingerprint or a very similar one, you end up with a situation that says, hey, I've seen this before. I've used these engines before. Um, I potentially, if I'm a vendor creating things, uh, I can reuse the same engine that I've used in the past for this particular task. Um, this has been very enlightening for the clients I've talked to because they've looked at and said, well, I didn't realize that these two things are so similar with one another. I didn't realize that chatbots and the bots that I use for service delivery on my, my – um, in my IT help desk are essentially identical outside of a few minor changes. Yes, they are. So we can bring that to you now and say, look, you know, you may have seen this before, therefore you can leverage some of the same practices and governance that you've done in the past. Or the, the flip side of that is these things are so different from one another that you're going to have to completely rethink how you apply this, how you apply your methodology for building out this new tech type of automation technology. It's so different from what you've done in the past that um, you're not going to be able to reuse the same talent. You're not going to be able to reuse the same processes. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we were launching eBusiness and, and a framework like this 
would have been so helpful because you can see why people would want to test out across different dimensions of e-business, if I go back in time, which is how much are customers impacted? How much is it really challenging my logistics engine? Where am I placing duress on the relationship between my existing business and this new digital business that I'm standing up? I mean, you can see how this dimensionality allows people to get ahead and think ahead and also place in projects that are not represented here in terms of a visual signature that says, I need to spend more time, let's say, taking on human risk because I have to learn how to do that. If I wait on that dimension and, I, and my competitors don't wait and I'm late to the game, I might be forced to take on way too much risk just to catch up. Absolutely. Yeah, th- this is a situation that, that was kind of funny at first because I, you know, I, I came to Forrester. I've been here for a couple of years as a principal analyst, but before that I was an engineer for a living. And I, I always look for solutions that have already been built rather than try to build our own and if we, if we can help it. And I said, you know, there's got to be a taxonomy out there, right? There's got to be something that compares different types of automation to be able to make these risk assessments. There's got to be a way to predict solutions based off of combining different types of automation, whether or not that's going to have uh, an organizational impact. And it turns out there wasn't. So what we've done in building it is provide that kind of language for folks to be able to say, okay, now I actually can make a, a reasonable comparison, not just off of how it functions, which is how people were looking at automation, but as you were saying, how the impact is on risk of the organization itself. If I'm going to drop ship this into my company, uh, do I need to completely rethink how I do risk? Do I have to go down the road of, say, looking at things like chaos engineering or site reliability engineering in order to apply this technology? Or can I use what I've done all along? Um, You know, the other thing that I think it needs to be emphasized in this framework is that we do look at the societal element of every type of automation. Uh, You may not notice certain types of automation, but they may be very impactful society-wise. You know, I've talked to people that say, you know, when are we having driverless cars? When is that going to become a real-life thing? It's already a real-life thing. They're they're driving past you, (laughs) right? And that's going to have a significant impact on how society as a whole functions. So therefore, driverless cars in our framework has a very high um, impact rating for that particular thing, whereas something like, say, um, automated teller, teller, uh, teller management, ATMs, which have been established for years, have already had their impact. They've already had their moments. And at this point, you know, introducing more automation around banking doesn't really change that world that much. It doesn't really change society that much. If I can, you know, to deposit my checks at two o'clock in the morning, no one's losing their job at this point because of that, because no one was handling the checks at two o'clock in the morning. So we do that for every single type of automation, which is, again, a fairly unique thing. Chris, you had mentioned this concept of islands of automation in an organization. So how are you seeing leaders or clients use the framework? Meaning, are they coming together to use it together to map things across the organization or is, you know, because if things are still siloed, there will still be islands of automation. So is this both a cultural shift of coming together, working together to understand the risk and reward profile or the like uh, technologies that are, that have been implemented? Absolutely. And it's an interesting, you know, so one situation I've seen happen over and over again is um, RPA is huge, robotic process automation. It's growing to be a multi-billion dollar business. Um, 
And what I've found is that people will stand up RPA in different parts of an organization without talking to one another. And in the past, this would have been addressed by, you know, a center of excellence of some sort coming together and, and using a framework like this. And what we found is it's not quite that. I'm actually working on some research with Craig LeClaire, who is one of our PA experts, about what we're now calling automation strike teams, which are these groups and organizations that are using our framework along with um, their own experiences to say, look, I can recreate different types of automation workflows. I can potentially not rebuild the wheel every time. I'm not going to necessarily be a center of excellence for two reasons. One is that term is a little tainted at this point. Um, but secondly, because it's not really one thing. I could have an t- automation strike team for RPA. I could have one for hybrid cloud management. I could have one for chatbots. But this group will come in. It has robot architects. It has robot jump starters that say, look, we've, we've done this in other parts of the organization. Here's a standards-based approach on how we can tackle this. Here's how we can make it go faster and get it out there faster. We don't need to have you know, 15 different ways of doing the same thing. And again, this is a situation where before the framework, you wouldn't necessarily know where to make that connection. You wouldn't necessarily know from a talent perspective how to build that team, and now you can. I love the question you asked, Jen, because it goes to one of the items of sort of interest for me, which is we just finished some of the future of CX. And in that, what we said was, you know, CX, as you roll out to the future, is going to have teams comprised of ethicists, anthropologists, people that know neural sciences to understand how brains are being affected, obviously technologists and all these different people. And if you look at enterprise and sort of up-level it a bit, you're going to want to have, at some point in time, the CFO from a risk standpoint, HR, EX, whatever it's named from a standpoint of how the employees are being impacted, CX in terms of how the experiences are impacted, not just to assess what is true about the portfolio, but more to the point, how to plan out the portfolio. This idea of not just alignment, but being able to look forward and play offense with automation across the different piece parts of the enterprise, it seems so central and powerful in this framework. Yeah, this is a very forward-looking approach. And, you know, what's, what's kind of surprises some people when I talk about these strike teams is it's not necessarily the people that you would expect in your enterprise. Um, a lot of automation projects get started by traditional IT, and these strike teams are not necessarily IT. They often sit between IT and domain experts of some sort, whether it's in the line of business or in other portions of IT. Um, those folks can come from those traditional roles, but they end up being something different in the end. And I myself have experienced this. I've been in positions where, in in my past career, where I essentially automated myself out of work. And to the credit of the organization I was working for at the time, they didn't say, okay, well, goodbye. (laughs) They said, uh, you know, okay, great. Let's think about, can you do some process engineering? Can you do strategy work? Can you do some governance work? And that's essentially what these strike teams are all about. And again, without things like the framework without things like our queue, there wouldn't have been a really great way to standardize an approach to building these teams out. They would have just popped up without any kind of real guidance. And now we have that guidance from not only, you know, our, our, our folks that are analysts like myself, but tons and tons of conversations with clients that say, look, this is the approach we, we should be taking and why. So what, what would be the obstacles for putting this in place? You know, if I, if I don't have one, I have islands. I may not have the governance that allows it to come in easily. What What are the things that people should watch for if they have an interest in bringing in a framework of this nature? So the number one 
thing that I've seen as the roadblock is governance by edict, where someone comes in and says, um, here's how we're going to do things. Here's how we're going to standardize. These are the tools we're going to use. This is, this, this is the workforce. Without actually having a conversation with not only the players that are going to be leveraging the automation, but everyone who's going to be supporting it, the risk management folks that are going to be doing compliance checks against it and what have you. Um, what I tend to find works a lot better is governance by consensus when it comes to automation. Bringing in the various players into a room and say, look, I know automation is not new to you. you you've, been doing, you've been automating various processes in your neck of the woods for some time, your, your line of business or your development team or what have you. However, we've got to scale this out to the enterprise. Let's talk about what can be applied across all of us um, with you know, leveraging things like the framework to know what impact that would potentially have. And say, let's have a, almost not necessarily a democracy per se, but let's have a bit of a vote here that says, I, this, these tools are not only solutions that are clear to understand what they're doing and they can do the job, but they're, they're, they're scalable, they're reusable, they're in a way modular that I can essentially reuse different parts of the automation and hand it to somebody else and say, hey, or you can actually use this for your purposes, even though you didn't know necessarily how, the, how it functions. Um, again, the, the roadblock is coming in and saying, just do this. This is it. This is it. This is, this is how we're going to do things. The, the, the way to attack it is to say, let's go off all in the room and figure out, can we agree on something here in terms of an automation strategy? And when you've seen it being adopted, what did you find surprising about either its instant efficacy or secondary challenges that emerged that you're like, wow, I didn't know that that was going to sort of pop up? What was, what was surprising as this thing gets rolled out? Yeah, I would say that the biggest secondary challenge or the challenge that people don't necessarily notice at first is, um, and it goes back to the risk assessment kind of part of the equation is, just because you deploy an automation technology and just because you scale it out doesn't necessarily mean you have a structure behind it to govern and perform compliance against it. Um, I have a lot of conversations with our security and risk team at Forrester about the impact that automation has on their role. And I've said to them, you know, I don't see how the security and risk role doesn't become essentially um, hands-on with this and get their hands dirty with some of the, the principles that are in the framework. That they're not going to, I don't see how they don't learn some APIs and learn how to structure certain things to be able to make a call as to not only is this automation running the way it should, but is it governed properly? Is it fitting regulations? That sort of thing. And to the credit of the teams that, you know, the team that we have, the security risk team, they said, yes, we absolutely have to tell our operations folks on our side to get their hands dirty. Uh, so that's often the, the, the thing that people don't see necessarily is they'll, they'll look at the cost, they'll look at perhaps the initial impact in terms of bringing in a project team or a product team in order to manage it, but they don't think about, okay, well, now we have to change all these secondary processes that go into governing this type of automation and making sure it's compliant. Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that from like from an Internet of Things standpoint, which is a form of automation, that automation will encourage us to increase the threat surface, increase the threats to the enterprise. And so understanding and, again, balancing that risk and ways to engage customers in different modes is going to be part of a security game plan. Absolutely. And it's also flipped some folks on their heads in terms of what they think is risky and what isn't. I've often had conversations with folks that say, 
you know, if we don't automate, that's less risky overall because I don't have to worry about some type of automation running wild. And my argument to them is, how are you in a situation now where you can't make mistakes? Obviously, you have human beings as part of the equation. Aren't they as risky, if not more so? Um, if you look back at all the major cloud outages, Amazon, Microsoft, what have you, uh, a good chunk of it was due to fat fingering. It was due to a human being stepping in and, and making a mistake. It wasn't the automation necessarily that was causing the problem. It was somebody that didn't think through the process of the change management process. And I would go back to any given enterprise and say, I would rather have a robot do things correctly 50 times in a row um, and potentially take on a risk that it might impact more systems through it, the, the ability to go, it go, for it to go faster versus having a human being go in every single time and end up with 50 different results. And not necessarily if the change I made for one set of systems or one set of applications, it got applied to everything else. And, and I'm, I think I'm saying the obvious, but the framework that is here can consider existing technologies and is adaptable to as technologies evolve or new te technologies show to the game, including things, you know, things as futuristic as blockchain or different AIs, facial recognition, all these different pieces. This is allowing itself to manage whichever technology is in present. This is a way to govern the portfolio. Absolutely. This framework is built in a way specifically that it's never finished. Essentially, it, it, it's, it's a good thing. What we're doing is saying any given technology could be brought in, and we could also take things out of the framework. If some type of automation is no longer required, or it gets superseded, or it gets combined, two things get combined to one, we don't need to call it two things anymore. We see this with um, various automation in the infrastructure space. We see in the development space where today two tools do slightly different things automation-wise, but they share that same digital signature. We don't need two tools. We can get away with one. So we're constantly adding um, automation into the framework, and we're also evaluating if certain types of automation needs to be taken out because it's been superseded. So in your work, Chris, automation is taking center stage in oh so many conversations. And the narrative is it's having a profound impact on the enterprise. So where, where does this framework play in, in your mind to sort of hit where the pressure is most, where you feel like there's greatest uncertainty, greatest unleashed potential, whatever it might be, where this framework can unleash the positive or negate or mitigate the negative? Absolutely. Uh, so it's a good question. And I, I think what it can do is allow folks to understand their automation dividends and deficits. Uh, we're at a place right now in his, human history where uh, the jobs that are being impacted or about to be impacted have never been necessarily impacted by automation before. A lot of people look at it as a physical automation play where we're talking about robots replacing, say, factory workers or retail store clerks. And certainly there's an impact there, but uh, the biggest group that's going to be impacted the most in the next year or two is administrators, uh, what was essentially fleet managers or cubicle workers. And our framework allows you to look at that and say, okay, now I see why, if I deploy this type of automation, why that's so impactful. Therefore, let me rethink how I structure not only my, my organization, but how do I reskill folks? How do I make sure they're useful in this new world to come? Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. 
If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.